everybody. Welcome to this Rup TV Green Room. This week we're doing it without Fala. He's somewhere on a flight to Mobile World Congress. So if you see him there, definitely check him out. Of course, he'll be happy to see you. We are on episode number 354. We got some amazing guests. My amazing producer, L. Thank you so much. And of course, uh, our guests. So we're going to introduce them in our traditional state, which is reverse order. We're going to ask them where they're coming in from. And of course, what are they talking about today? So, Kate, it's pub time. Tell us where you are. And <laughs> You're absolutely right. It's pub time over here in the UK. It's Friday night. Um, I'm calling in from very dark and wet uh, Brighton in England. And we're going to be talking about why hasn't work hasn't really been working for everyone and how we can all work a bit different. It's a great point. And there's so many different ways of work, where we work, how we work, when we work, why we work. It's all changing and it's been moving very, very quickly. So thank you for being on the show. All right. So Giener, where are we coming in from? What are we talking about? Uh, we are coming in from a suburb of Chicago, Ridge, Illinois, where I live, and we're going to be talking about the headwinds on the trades and the workforce shrinking in those trades. Oh my God, that's a great topic. I grew up in the Rust Belt in Allentown, Pennsylvania, and we will talk more about that. So, Romy, where are you coming in from? And you look like you're about to jump into something as well. Yes, yes, yes. So I'm uh, in Chicago. I'm actually speaking from downtown Chicago right now. And I'm going to talk about really digital transformation in healthcare and how to provide patient-centered care and what I call the Amazonification paradigm of doing it better, faster, cheaper. So Romy, awesome. We're going to have to have you at our conference. We have our Healthcare Transformation Summit. For those listening in the background, we do it May 16th to 18th in Las Vegas. And we bring together the top 20 to 25 healthcare minds to share what is happening in patient care, patient-centric care. So very, very cool. Well, hey, that's the intro. You are in the green room. And of course, we're now going to kick it off. Elle, over to you. All right. Here we go. Three, two, one. Disrupt TV show. And as you know, this is episode number 354. Bala Afshar is on his way to Mobile World Congress. And of course, we've got some amazing guests. This is the weekly show where we interview CEOs, leaders, healthcare experts, uh, gurus in the marketplace, academics, politicians, and those with a strong point of view. But the focus is on innovation, where the future is happening next. And of course, we've got amazing guests. So this week, we're going to kick it off with Dr. Romy Chopra, who's at Mimit Health. And of course, 
As many of you know, he is quite accomplished. Uh, he is one of the folks. He's the founder, president, and CEO of Mimit Health, Midwest Institute for Minimally Invasive Therapies, and SIMS, Comprehensive Integrated Management Systems and Solutions in Chicago. He is a nationally renowned, actually internationally renowned, interventional radiologist and healthcare innovator. But here's the thing, bringing Eastern roots and Western roots together actually give you the best of both worlds. And of course, gives him a chance to challenge the healthcare industry forever. We're going to spend some time talking to him. He's got numerous awards, a congressional medal for outstanding contributions in patient care, and also a Physician of the Year Award at the 11th Congressional Global Community Oscars. I didn't even know there was such a thing. I had to look that up. It was pretty wild. So, But in his free time, uh, Dr. Chopra enjoys being a board member in the Indo-American Chamber and is an active member of several professional societies, including the Society of Interventional Radiology, the Radiology Business Management Association, and the American Society Physician Executives. So he travels, he reads, he golfs, but more importantly, he's sharing his insights with us today. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Ray. <clears throat> Thank you. Well, hey, we're happy to have you here. You might not know this. I actually have a master's in public health from Johns Hopkins. So just to give you some context, <laughs> how do you see healthcare organizations effectively navigate this digital transformation? This is hard. This is people. This is not like we're moving digits, we're changing businesses, we don't care. I mean, there are human lives at stake. So what lessons have you learned from those types of experiences? Well, you know, I, uh, I was lucky. I got into med school. I was barely 18 years old back in India. I've been doing this for a very long time. And uh, I love the human condition. I'm a student of the human condition. And uh, obviously practice yoga, the Eastern youths, uh, Eastern roots, and all the way up to uh, Western medicine using high-end technologies, lasers, you name it. And what I realize is that we are all patients. You can't even born alone, you need prenatal care. And even after you die, you need postmortem care. So we all need care. And, you know, unfortunately, healthcare being a $4 trillion business, which is greater than Germany and UK's GDP, uh, that includes everything. That's our healthcare GDP. If you this is American healthcare you're talking about, right? So. American healthcare. So when you look at that, even there, we still have challenges. And uh, about just under a decade ago, I said, you know, when you step out of the hospital, and I've done this at a very high level, I'm a tenured associate professor, chaired academic departments, but done. I live at the intersection of medicine, business, and technology. But I realized it wasn't patient-centered. You know, uh, academic issues say, we do research, we teach, but what about patient care first? Uh, if you've ever been to a hospital, finding parking is a problem, getting, you know, an appointment is a problem, reaching a doctor is a problem, you got to go to portals and pages and text and once you step out of healthcare, it's instantaneous, it's digital, it's on there. And I always start asking the question, why can't, be medicine, why can't medicine be like this? And I studied, and I'm a physician first, but had always been an entrepreneur, love technology, love processes. I learned a lot about TQM, CQI in my earlier career. And I said, ha, huh, why can't medicine be like this? And who's doing this well? Uh, Ram Charan wrote about Google, Amazon, he wrote more about Amazon. He had written a book called Execution with Larry Bossidy. And I always thought about, huh, how do we execute well in healthcare? And that's when I realized you got to be one patient-centered. You got to be connected with the patient. You got to collaborate for that success. And you can't do all this if you don't have a platform. So we started taking all the best 
platforms that existed, technologies that existed, Salesforce, Amazon, Box, AWS, whatever you need, connecting the EHR, because everybody lives in the EHR. And you, you go see a doctor. Now, when I go to a, a physician, my primary care physician, I'm just a patient. I switch off my physician mind because otherwise I'm trying to self-diagnose cause problems. And my provider, I remember the first time, is spent 90% of the time on the computer and barely talked to me. So I said, ha, huh, I got to change this. And I started one step at a time. And we've now taken, and first thing I learned is it doesn't happen overnight. Second is when you are patient-centered and you live in that paradigm, patients fall in love with you. So you know about the quintuple aim in healthcare. Excellent product service. Second is excellent patient experience. Third is that uh, providers are not being burnt out. It's cost effective and it's equitable. And equity is not just about money. It's about the social determinants of health. And we've been able to, by digital transformation, really make that happen. One point before I let you ask me a follow-up question would be, First is, you know, we went from, I, I go back to a time when I'm a radiologist at core training, then an international, which is like a minimally invasive surgeon. And I founded a multi-specialty group. I go back to the day when everything was written and x-ray films were processed by hand. Okay, so that was real kind of analog technology. We then started digitizing things, scan it, scan the image, scan everything else, but nothing came back in the sense of insights. Then we went to digitalization. It's like using a digital camera. We started using software, putting data into EMRs and using X-ray machines that were digital but we, and information, but we never got any insights. That was digitalization. The true impact is digital transformation where you have actionable insights and knowing what to do next at the individual patient level. So, you know, that, I mean, it's true, right? The consumerization happens. There's better patient experience. Customer experiences uh, don't reflect, patient experiences don't reflect advancements in customer experiences. Uh, things aren't ambient sitting in the background. Uh, a lot of times being wasted with the most expensive person entering data into the EMR. I mean, this, these are all factors that have been traditional challenges uh, as we've actually consumed more technology and delivered less healthcare. <laughs> which is which is which is not what it's supposed to be like uh, to, to enter that kind of marketplace. Uh, you wrote something about our healthcare being more like the Ritz Carlton, right, and and more like being Costco, and those could not be two more. They're two different types of experiences, but yes. they're very very applicable to healthcare. Let's start there and and jump in a little yeah. bit deeper. Sure. So you know, first is um, if you look at if you go to Costco, Amazon, all the top companies in the world, they do six things very well. First is they give you an excellent product or service. Second is they'll give you excellent customer service if you have a problem with the product in the first place. Third is at least customer facing, you'll never meet a unhappy employee treating you badly. Four is they'll save you money, but they make a lot of money, that's value. Fifth is that they're constantly innovating and improving. And sixth, that all of this is sustained. They keep doing it again. Healthcare on the other hand was not that way. You know, I mean, give me one student from a top business school whose ambition is to be the CEO of a medical school or a hospital. Zero. And I've dealt with thousands. And that was because it became a little artificial, if you would. It was you had to go to healthcare 
and there were just these barriers that were unnecessary. And they tried to do the maximalist approach. You know, you can get a very healthy burger or very healthy food in a cost-effective environment versus you're only focused on the experience of the Ritz-Carlton environment. The truth is a balance in between. So if you buy from Amazon, they've kind of taken that patient experience, that customer experience, and baked it into what they do. So we did that in our world. Patient at a time. So the first is we do what's called a patient 360. I know everything about the patient from the social factors. We track a ton of people entering all this data. That's not so a patient 360. But I know their problems. I know what their medications are. I know all the other stuff. Second after that is, you know, it takes a village to raise a child. It's the same way. You just don't go to one doctor or one nurse or whatever. So we had created what we call the household. And we track every provider that they have, every caregiver that they have, where, which organizations they work with. Third is pay a 360. So you'll, you'll realize that today there's almost nobody without health insurance, if you would. And the payer is the monkey in the middle. There are two people who pay for healthcare, two organizations or entities, the government and employers. Yep. Government, so you may have Medicaid, you may have some other plans, but you have payers in the middle. Tell me one broke payer. You can't. Okay. You'll never see a broke payer. They, they control the money. They control the data. They control the uh, systems and everything else. And then you have the patient at the other end. So now how do you, and all of this is a data information knowledge game. If you permit me, you take data and it's just data, just bricks. You organize that a little bit, becomes information. You internalize that information, becomes knowledge. But if you get insights from it, that's the wisdom level. What do I do? I have a patient, I see that as blood glucose level. What does it mean? Now I know I processed it together and I go, his blood sugar is high, his HbA1c is high, so this is diabetes. Now I know it. What do I do with it? Where's the wisdom? And that comes by, hey, I, the trends are high. He's not taking his meds or his, 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 whatever the factors are. And therefore, I need to intervene. So that kind of live on the go, I call it medicine at the speed of life, solving patients' problems. So, you know, I do surgeries. I'll have a headset like this on with me all the time. I am constantly, I got a team of people talking, but it's all about in a digital transformation paradigm, solving people's problem, one problem at a time. I'll give you an example. I do surgeries every day and I built all this by every time I see a problem, I say, okay, how am I going to solve this? Why is this a problem? And then I say, how do I do it better, faster, and cheaper? Those are the triple constraints of life. Don't you only so, get to choose two out of three? <laughs> <laughs> well, so really what happens is if you look at Amazon, they give you a great product. Yep. You know, if you, or let me go back and say, you take anything in life. If you want something that's very, very high quality, it will take long and it'll cost you more. Yes, if you want works. something really cheap, it may take you a long time to get and the quality won't be that high. If you want something really fast, and really high quality, it's going to cost you a lot more. So these are the triple constraints. And as you start to tighten this up with logistics and how you manage your systems, then you can achieve that. So I'll give you a real-life example. I do a procedure called uterine fibroid embolization. These are for young women who have uh, a benign tumor in their uterus. Most of them are told, go get surgery. They don't want it, a hysterectomy. They find me on the web. So we've done... 
we use Salesforce, Marketing Cloud, all that stuff. They find us on the web. They can check me out. They learn all this. They show up. Now we follow. They start on a journey with us. I do the surgery from the wrist where I get into the RE. I shrink the, the tumor by getting your catheter all the way down. When I put the particles, I know they're going to get some pain at night, so we give them the pain medications, everything. In the past, some patients who would break through and not have unmanaged the pain land up in an ER, cost them more than oh, wow. hours. They, they are miserable, blah, blah, blah. Guess now what? The entire household of the patients, so this patient I did it five days ago, I had her mobile number, her husband's there, I have his number and email, the mother, the whole household, all the other docs. Before they, they got an automatic text message saying, hey, your, your procedure's done. She reaches home, she's getting some pain, they text us. The, the, we created a system where there's a team contact center and the, her care team can see it. Immediately texted her, we escalated, we call it omni-channel healthcare delivery and omni-channel service. So basically we texted her in a minute, I did a telehealth with her, she needed a more powerful meds. I uh, called in the script, it was delivered to her home. Now, otherwise she'd be in the ER for eight hours. So your That's notion of omni-channel healthcare is really these immersive experiences that happen uh, at the convenience of the patient, right? Yes, it's a, it's a, it's basically you're centered on the patient, and we all have favorite channels, you know. So some people like to be called, some prefer email, some use uh, text, the other WhatsApp. Uh, you may be on social media a lot. Uh, obviously, you wanted to be secure. We even use Slack. And we figure out how so every patient gets a flag slack channel not that they're on it but i want <laughs> people who can come in and swarm in on the care their care plans are seen there what's appointment there's a problem contact center can see him so first is omni-channel healthcare delivery which is one is you come to the clinic but you can't so we see you at home and in the hospital we we'll see you in the hospital you're traveling we do digital health you know some patients are in a nursing home we see them but we are where the patient is, and that's the power of digital transformation. The second is omni-channel communication. So somebody may say, hey, I like phones. Somebody says, I like uh, text messages. Now we're very careful about privacy. All this communication is all tied into what we call our patient management platform outside of the EHR. They talk to each other. So we know exactly a patient's coming in, they get a text message when they need them. They have a problem, they text us, somebody's on it, they open a case and that's omni-channel patient care, patient service. <laughs> it's awesome. Uh, so you're, you're, you're getting to the patient where they are, right? And you're actually making those access points. Uh, you're addressing the whole health equity, the access points, uh, trying to get people there. Uh, do people still visit physicians in person? Yes, they do. Yeah, you know, they do. And some, you know, we, we have the whole spectrum from primary care all the way up to comp complex surgical procedures. I'll give you another real life example. I have patients from all over the globe. Uh, you know, I won't take the name, but uh, Eastern European country, prime minister's father, he could go to any university in the way. He had another physician here who knew me well. He flies in, take care of him, got from Israel, other parts of the world. Because what people want is to feel, have their best life. They want a good experience and they want the problem solved. Don't care about anything else. So certain things like surgery, I can't do remotely, but communication, managing the information, staying on top of it. I've actually taken a call from an international flight. A patient of mine texted and goes, you know, I've got all this pain. And I'm like, really? And this, 
on the Emirates, they allow you, you know, so I quickly did a call with him, looked at it and said, don't worry about it. And actually from the airline, I called in the script, which was delivered to his home. So what do you do with physician burnout, right? Uh, oh. you know, because like they're being bombarded. My, my, my wife's a physician. She's picked up a concierge practice, right? Yeah. I mean, it's all day, all night. It's like, I mean, every channel. Uh, so here's I mean, what we've done for that. So one of the biggest compliments I get from my providers is they'll tell me we can't work anywhere else because their lives are so easy. When they leave the environment, uh, the office, they don't do a single piece of documentation. They're available. So what we do, number one, is everything that we do, we use scribes, number one. So Excellent. that's number one. But then we have care coordinators. We've created what's called a clinical operations team. So there's the patient. There's the provider providing care. They may have a medical assistant. They create a plan. The care coordinator picks up the plan. There are associate care coordinators who execute that plan. And finally, we have patient engagement, contact center staff will do the scheduling all of this on the same channel, full democratization of data. So guess what? They get a text message. It logs into the platform. And, and then each patient has a Slack channel that the team is focused on. So zero burnout. You know, I tell them if you're not happy and you're not yourself healthy, how are you going to help people be healthy? So no, we that's how great. we prevent the burnout. No, your seven principles are definitely true, uh, especially in, in, in responsible for healthcare. Uh, we're definitely seeing a shift to patient-centered healthcare, but nobody has a good definition of that. Uh, your definition of putting the value around the patient uh, and creating a value exchange for happy providers and happy patients is probably a, a great way to go, especially given the current state of where our healthcare system is. Yeah, and making it cost-effective. Yeah. You know, a lot of well, stuff is wastage versus... If you have the right information and then you run the processes on it and make it happen, that's really what it takes. There's a paper I wrote in 2016 for Harvard Business Review called What It Would Be Like to Enter an AI-Driven Healthcare or AI-Driven Hospital. Uh, it's all about the ambient experiences that happen in the background. So the scribing is there, all the diagnostics happen automatically, right? Doctors aren't spending their 15 minutes like typing for stuff. Their scripts are actually telling you what's the next best action. Uh, we won't tell the coding people. Maybe we code up for things that you really need to code up for. Uh, make sure you code down for things that you shouldn't do, right? You get the regulatory requirements in place. You make sure drug interactions, adverse event reactions are actually happening. So you're focused on the relationship, the care, the piece that we were supposed to be doing instead of spending a lot of money paying some person in Wisconsin, you know, a lot of license fees. Uh, but anyways, we do know who that is. Uh, maybe. But yeah, we are here with Romy Chopra. Thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, he's the CEO of Mimit Healthcare, but more importantly, uh, a pioneer in digital transformation and improving patient centricity. You can follow him on X at Dr. Romy Chopra. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Thank you. Take care. Okay. Very, very cool. So we've got a lot going on. This is our special episode talking about different things in transformation and work. Uh, and of course, uh, what's happening next. So our next guest <laughs> is even better. We're talking about SMC roofing solutions, but wait, why? So we're Giener Osgo. He's got 25 years of comprehensive experience uh, spanning service, technology, and supply chain. And of course, this is really important. Ops management, CRM, project management, PL uh, management, team building, all this is coming together 
because organizations are looking for that level of change and digital transformation. And so we've got him on to share a little bit about how he's done this, uh, what organizations are talking about in the future, uh, and of course, what's going more importantly with trades and the workforce, which is one of the most important topics, especially when you look at population dynamics, transformation, automation, and AI, people are like, oh, what's going on? And of course, what's been going on in the larger, broader macro environment, thinking about where colleges have played a role or colleges have not played a role and trades are on its way back. Now, here's the context. So welcome to the show. Uh, we'll get you off mood, but welcome to the show and it's gonna be important. Um, but the big thing is, uh, we could, is, let me give you some context. I grew up in Allentown, Pennsylvania. And when I think of all the kids who went to college and didn't find a job uh, and are staying at home uh, in debt, uh, trying to get a good job. And then think of all my friends that were in the trades uh, in that period of time that have a job, uh, employ 10 to 20 people, uh, have a great Schedule C deduction, uh, are very productive in their lives. I mean, the contrast couldn't be any more different, right? And and this is like in a period of, let's see, I'll date myself, in about 30 to 40 years, <laughs> you've seen that big shift of like, you know, the promise was go to college, get a job, you'll be fine. Right. The reality is very different. And one last fact. My brother, a human plumber, GI doc, is making the same as a plumber at this moment at about 300 bucks an hour, right? That, that's, that's right. That's, the, that's what people don't grok, right? Yeah. And it's like, go to college, go to college. Like, why? <laughs> I don't want to, right? So, so let's start with that context and uh, talk about these overall headwinds and trades uh, that the workforce size is shrinking. So what's going on? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, as you mentioned, you know, the, the workforce is shrinking in the trades, right? For many, many years... Uh, the what we heard as we grew up and for many generations, it was go to college, get a white collar job, you know, whatever that is, however you define white collar. And today, you know, with things like generative AI and all, all the other things we've been talking about, some of those white collar jobs essentially are changing or, or moving away. Meanwhile, the trades, especially the mechanical trades or something has to be repaired, um, keep growing. And that workforce has shrunk to a point now where there's not enough tradesmen to actually fix the things we need them to fix. So, you know, in, if you overlay technology on that, those trades are also kind of feeling threatened by the technology today. They won't say it out loud, but I've spoken to a lot of technicians. I spent uh, 20 or so years in a commercial kitchen repair business. So if you eat out or eat in a restaurant or eat in a hospital, um, typically the tradesmen that we had would be doing all the work there and you know that that work pool is just shrinking and you talk to a technician and you say things like hey we want to give you technology tools we want you we want to capture all that knowledge that you've had from the last 20 30 years and put it into a kind of a machine learning model to help other technicians and they shut it down they don't want that adoption is very very difficult for them right now um, they are seeing technology as a threat to alienate their trade so they're fighting against it a little bit right now. And on top of that, you have the shrinking workforce. So you really need the technology in order to attract newer um, tradesmen into the field, as well as the training for them. And you have these more senior tradesmen not willing to work with technology in order to pass that knowledge along. So there's a little bit of a vicious cycle going on right now. So does that change the apprentice process? Right. I mean, to be a master electrician or a plumber or mm -hmm. someone roofing, I mean, it, it took some time to, to learn that. Right. So there are the technical skills we see now, like, I mean, you know, measurement, like this is measurement. Yeah. yeah. 
right? right. Uh, to the actual fine craft skills of the actual trade, right? So yeah, for sure. You know, the, the way I thought it, you know, when I first joined this, these, the trades businesses about 25 years ago now, um, technicians had their little notepads in their pocket. Most tradesmen do, right? They bring it out and it's got all their years and decades worth of knowledge in these little pocket notebooks. And um, in order for a new technician at the time to learn that, the apprentice, as you, as you referred to, they had to spend a lot of time with that senior technician kind of riding next to them or riding with them on jobs to learn that knowledge. Well, technology today allows us to capture that information more proactively and work orders that they generate. But that some of that like really intrinsic knowledge from those technicians and those tradesmen really, ha you know, the notepads they still carry around to this day, we want to capture that information because when we do that, we can enable those younger technicians to be more successful and more productive, right? And we need them. And if you think of the kind of younger technicians now want technology to be embedded as part of the job for yeah. them to have interest yeah. into going into it. So if, if you can harmonize and get the adoption of the more senior technicians or technical fields to, to help feed that information into the knowledge based tools or machine learning to help the younger technicians, we can we can return to growing the, that workforce again because we can drive interest that there is now technology is a part of this industry and you can move into this industry and have technology be an active part of it. Today, it is not. We need to move there though. We've got to make trades jobs cool again. I think Mike Rowe yes. has done a great job with dirty jobs, kind of talking about what's happening. Uh, we've seen shows like Built in America. We think other things where people are actually seeing that. Uh, but but there's there's a bigger underlying piece that's missing here, which is really the understanding of the, the financial freedom to own your own show, to own your own shop, to be able to be part of something, Absolutely. build a business. I, I think, you know, you've done that yourself. Talk about yeah. that journey from going from working for someone to opening your first shop. How do we make that easier? How do we get small businesses, the things that they need and the support? How do we fight the amount of regulation that's in place that sometimes keeps it very hard to do stuff, but have the right balance for customers? and consumer, uh, you know, safety and, and protections? Yeah, for sure. You know, the, um, the owner mentality or the entrepreneur mentality at the kind of the business level has to be really focused on the people that work for you and driving the right culture, right? Having a value proposition or in this case, the work that you do, the repair work that you do, the maintenance work that you do, depending on what you pick or roofing, right? You have to have a quality standard that you're willing to stick to. Because there's going to be a lot of challenges to that, even on day one of opening your doors, someone's going to want to challenge you on price or challenge you to go to a lower, lower quality shingle. We were just having this discussion with my leadership team uh, a few weeks ago in a leadership meeting about shingles, right? Something that no one ever thinks about. And our team made the choice as a team that one thing we will never uh, walk away from is the quality of shingle that we use, right? There's lesser quality shingles. You can drive higher margins, the business pieces of that. But the conviction is better quality, right? And your tradesmen then feel pride working for you, right? So what you do, there's trickle effects to that. Your consumer gets the benefit of a better quality roof. Your tradesmen get the, the benefit of understanding that this is a business I really want to partner with and I want to grow with because they care about their customers and they care about me because of what they're doing here. Makes sense. I apologize. I went with a standing seam metal roof. So, 
<laughs> so no, no. But hey, this is an important piece. Now, how do we build that pipeline for our trades? And what do we do to actually uh, get that in place? Because we know the shrinking workforce is happening. Uh, yeah. We think that there's a lot of things that are important. And, uh, you know, is there is there something that that helps? Is it the technology draw? Is there something with the data that you keep talking about here? Yeah, for sure. So like there's a couple of components to it. I'll bucket, you know, one is we have to start talking about the traits like they're important again. And, you know, one thing that happened during COVID is trades became kind of really important and to the forefront, you're on the news and they're like, hey, you know, what, what's considered a, a trade where it's okay to be out during COVID and do the work, right? Um, essential workers, right? All the trades were essential workers because they had to operate. So what I'd say is we should start talking about them as essential workers, as important um, your GI example is really good. Like, you know, plumbers make as much as doctors now. Yeah. We should yeah. make sure we, we should make sure we, you know, uh, merchandise that and talk about that a lot more. Second, on the technology side, we, you know, for the owners that are out there, I really would challenge you to start thinking about introducing technology into your business. However small you can afford to do without it being disruptive, think about it, but with intent, have a real use case. What are you trying to drive a benefit for your employees or your customers or both? Write it down, get alignment from your team and introduce some technology into there because you need that to attract that younger talent in. They're looking for that. They're hungry for the technology to make the trade more interesting. And then third, on the data side, you got you to gotta drive a work order workflow process that allows you to capture all that data in so that you can drive both value for your customers, more importantly, for the traits themselves, you can build this knowledge base then that helps you onboard newer technicians faster, helps you drive efficiency with existing technicians, help you get to more customers faster, right? Which is ultimately the goal of what everyone's trying to do. Your workforce is shrinking, your efficiency has to get better in order to meet, you know, for you to deliver the same amount of service to your customers, right? So, you know, again, real quick summary, Start, start small with the technology stack. Make sure you merchandise or um, evangelize how important the trades are. And then take the data, right, that you get and convert it back into a value offering for your business. Now, they're really cool things, right? Like you're mechanical, you did first robots, like first Lego lead, like robotics, like you like to work with your hands. I mean, this whole right. IoT piece that's actually popping up is another area you've been passionate about. Talk about this, right? right? Because, you know, how does that tie back in? Because the trades are, I mean, I mean it's very technical these days. Oh, yeah. So, you know, the in the past, you had what I'll call technical and mechanical were two separate things, right? So... If you were somebody who worked on electronics, that was more focused on the technical side of things, right? If you were mechanical, you were a tradesman. You fixed plumbing, you fixed an oven, uh, you fixed the HVAC in your home, right? Today, because technology is starting to bridge with IoT, and a lot of those, a, a lot of that, what was considered mechanical pieces of equipment, um, have some IoT component to them. That means you have to be a tradesman who's mechanically adept, but also somebody who uh, understands technology and how to repair the technology as well. So those two things are bridging. And IoT is driving that because as consumers, we all expect, it's almost table stakes now. You, you want to know that you're, what the temperature is in your house when you're 400 miles away. You know, we've just gotten accustomed to that. So somebody has to be able to fix it, right? And, yeah. and, and fix both parts of it now when they come back. 
well, can you get remote service? I mean, that that's, that would be like the holy grail. <laughs> I mean, right? it, you know? it just today, right? There, there are pieces of equipment today that can make phone calls on your behalf to call in a service call. I mean, I had this AO Smith Vertex water heater that was like, you know, I'm like, what is a prover blower? Like, I mean, like, you know, <laughs> that stuff should just happen. You know, like I want it to happen. Like the IFT should happen. It's like, oh yeah, that's part, that part's got like 500 hours left. That part's got a hundred hours left, you know? Well, and to, given your perspective, even in roofing, you know, I was just on a call earlier today with somebody who's um, helping us with drones that can fly over homes right after a storm and understand if there's any damage to someone's home or to their roof, right? Um, just the ability to drive that back then really quickly to us to provide value to those consumers and help get their homes fixed and get our tradesmen out and, and get those roofs fixed. Like technology is everywhere right now. No, I mean, you run that drone there and you're out here in the valley, right? Where it hasn't rained in years and we're getting tons of rain. You'll see a cedar shake roof and you'll know. I mean, you'll be like, oh, yes. look at that gap, right? I mean, you could, you could actually prevent, prevent, you could actually proactively hit all the homes up early, right? And, and be right. able to do that. So, where, or where, even provide you know, a maintenance. You would, yeah, you know, in the past where you'd have to get somebody on the roof and maybe they could do 10 or 12 in a good day, like get on 10 or 12 and do visual inspections or manual inspections, you can probably do hundred with a, with a drone in a day. Right. So the amount of value we can provide back is a, a totally different space than what would have been just a few years ago. We need rooftop drone operators. <laughs> <laughs> That's a new category. For we sure, create sure. new job descriptions that are cool, right? That's half the battle. Yeah, right? no, for sure. That's right. That's how you track them in again, right? They have to feel that this technology provides them value and provides them a level of interest. You, you served in the armed forces. You were a drone operator. Let's just put that to work, right? I mean, there's something <laughs> you can do, right? I mean, I, mean, it's, it, I mean, it's a good point, right? I mean, and to, to be quite honest, some of them are just drone hobbyists, right? And um, here you're a hobbyist and you can make it a career for yourself, right? I mean, you know, part of the gig economy approach is that, just that, right? Now there's a need for something that didn't exist just a few years ago for somebody to go out and do for us. But, you know, this... Uh, Let's yeah, wrap sure. it up with a very important part is how do we tie that back to the community college system and, and bring that in? Because the community college system was, you know, before ITT, remember those guys? Um, yeah. The community college system was really our way to get the trades, you know, up and going. And, uh, you know, and, and a lot of that has, has been lost as with everyone's push to get to white collar college jobs. Yeah, what I would say is um, if you're in a company that's trade, um, trade forward, right, go visit your community colleges. And see what you can do to partner with them to restart some of those, right? Um, in my previous company at Smartcare, some of our leaders in the field had just started doing that, engaging some of the local schools to see if we can get that level of interest and then be a partner to get them off the ground, right? Because you remember, they've unwound all of it. So for them to start from scratch is really difficult. But if you proactively reach out and say, hey, I want to be your partner. Can we start this grassroots program together? you can make movement in those community colleges. We are definitely entering a people age in the era of AI. Uh, it's uh, humanizing things at machine scale. Our ability to actually uh, bring things back to physical is, is gonna be just important as the digital world. Uh, what would you give advice to uh, someone in terms of thinking about where, of course, AI is gonna play a role in all this? Mm. Um, Things will always break and will 
at least for the foreseeable future, maybe not in perpetuity, for the foreseeable future, we will need tradesmen to fix things. Um, AI included, by the way, because AI itself at this point, what's behind AI is some level of mechanical need to exist, right? So server farms, as an example, have huge HVAC systems that keep them cool, right? Somebody's got to work on those HVAC systems to keep the server farms cool for the AI to work. <laughs> so just giving you a perspective. Best darn HVAC systems. Got a great comment here from Greg Walters about copiers. Yep, they do fix themselves today for a lot of the times. Mm -hmm. uh, That's so right. It's a great point here. Thanks, Greg, for your comment. And of course, uh, you know, thanks for sharing your insights here, Giener. It's a, it's, it's amazing what's actually happening in this marketplace. And of course, some opportunities for folks to think there is more beyond the traditional college education. Uh, there's a lot more happening with the change in terms of the workforce. And of course, uh, thank you for sharing your insights. So, thank you, Ray. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yep. Giener Osgold, CEO of SMC Roofing Solutions. You can follow him on Twitter at G Y N E R O Z G U L. Thank you for being on the show. So, thank you, guys. Take care. Very cool. Well, this is the people age, and we do have someone to share with us more about this people age. And we have the one and only Kate Bravery. Thank you so much for being here. Hey, Ray. Thank you for inviting me. It's great to join you. She is the author of Work Different, and I think it's an important book. It came out this November. I believe Wiley was the publisher of that book. And of course, she's an organizational psychologist. Uh, she's lived in multiple places. She's lived in the Middle Kingdom and the United Kingdom. And of course, during the pandemic and working with global firms on all their talent strategies, she does that at Mercer uh, and working on Mercer's insight and advisory agenda. So she spends time researching workforce trends, working with people, people practices. And of course, during this period, she's been helping the WEF, uh, World Economic Forum, figure out how to help CHROs innovate and respond to where the future of work is heading. So you can follow her on Twitter at or X at Kate Bravery, B-R-A-V-E-R-Y. Thank you so much for spending your Friday evening with us. Now it's fun. Uh, and you know what? Lo I've loved the last two speakers because everything they've been talking about is the future of work, whether it's digital transformation in healthcare or whether it is the fact that we've got critical skill shortages and we're going to have to think different and work different if we're going to close them. <laughs> well, this is important, right? Because you wrote during the pandemic that we found out that not all jobs are good jobs. Hmm, <laughs> what do you mean by that? <laughs> you know, I think we all got a chance to reflect during that pandemic period, didn't we? And yes. we also all learn our own truths. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm happy to share my own truth. You know, through that pandemic, I realized no one wants to work for you. Doesn't matter, you know, how good your culture is, how good your benefits are, how good your pay is. Nobody wants to work for you where they want you to work with them. And and I think we learned post the pandemic when, you know, by the amount of people who protested about their jobs. I mean, I think in the US you had 50 million people quit in 2022. I mean, that's a pretty strong message um, that, you know, not all jobs are treated equally. And I think there was a really loud voice from frontline workers and from trades. And it was it's fascinating for someone who does do a lot of research. It got me also thinking that so much of the research is on the knowledge workers. Um, and we saw a huge difference. I mean, straight after the pandemic, the knowledge workers, we all know, were burnt out. And uh, and they're still burnt out. It, the timing of this is great because next week we release our Global Talent Trend Study and burnouts actually increased significantly in the US. Um, but, you know, the trades people were fed up. They, you know, the, the, you know, the, they were on the front line. They took the brunt of it. They lost their income. And 
we found our voice through the pandemic period, you know, whether it was talking about, look, as AI comes in, how is it going to erode my future work potential? Or we've got a cost of living crisis and my pay is not keeping up. So I think nope. individuals got more vocal. And I think as a result of that, we recognize that, yeah, actually, not all jobs are that inspiring. Not all jobs build the skills for tomorrow. And not all bosses are the most enjoyable bosses to work for. Yeah. It is one of the big shifts people haven't figured out if, if they didn't know what they liked about the job or disliked about their jobs or about themselves, they learned very, <laughs> very quickly uh, that was going on here. But were there things that actually made it easier for employers to help them with you know, any of these kind of transitions back to work, uh, back into work, <laughs> no work, <laughs> some days I mean, work? I mean, so well, have we, have we organized no the workforce based on your culture? And if you fit this culture, you end up working at a company's there because of their culture. Well, you know, it's funny because I think the, you know, if you think about the old contract, which was like the employment contract, actually, which, which you and I grew up in, it was like, yep. you know, we would do we would do our study at school, we would get into a job and we would, you know, keep our head down, do our time and we'd be rewarded, you know, with, you know, better benefits, you know, maybe the old days, the corner office in the car. Um, and that's also how we would get maybe more opportunities. The, the younger generation isn't looking for that. They actually want to be respected for what they bring to the table today. They want to move around in six months, a year. And they want to have their values shape that culture. So you mentioned culture. And I do think, you know, we did a lot showing people this is the culture of our company. And I still think we need to do that. But equally, we've got young, vibrant talent coming in. They want their values to shape the culture. And so they actually want to have a voice. They want their companies to come off mute on what they want, to, what they stand up for, what they care for. And that is a much more equal employer and employee relationship than we've seen for decades. And as a result of that, there's just a new blueprint for getting it right if you want to inspire and retain your talent. You do, you do. And, and, and I think what we've seen is that, you know, the brand of a company and what people's expectations in terms of that work environment uh, does dictate where folks go. I spent some time talking to investment bankers and people that were in their first two years and, you know, they know they got to put in the hours, right? Is it 80 hours? Is it 100 hours? Uh, but they're there to learn a craft. Right. And, and they know that expectation going in and they are compensated for that. Some might say not enough. Some might say it's 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 uh, too much. Right. But I think people will find that balance. So long the expectations are clear about the brand. Other places you go and, you know, you, you know that it might be, you know, four days in the office, one day at home, it might be two days in the office, three days at home. Right. And, and they built their lives around that expectations. But but what mm -hmm. we've heard from so many employers uh, is that their ability to articulate a clear and consistent policy is really what helps them because they set the expectations and folks have to leave. They have to leave. They totally understand. But once they get that culture right, they can then move on. But that kind of, but we're going to do this, but maybe the constant change, I think that was causing a lot of the grind. What did your clients think? Well, I agree with you. That kind of honest and transparent relationship which we actually all learned to do during the pandemic because you had executives rocking up saying i'm going to speak to you every friday but i don't know what the future holds and i don't know how we're going to respond that level of honesty we just had never seen before that was some of the good things that come came out of that pandemic that real empathy openness flattening of the organizational structures we need to now carry that forward because that's what young people are craving and that's what they're judging the company on you know this year when we ask people you know what what helps you thrive at work? What's shot up to the number one position is pride in the brand. 
if I'm not proud for the company I work for, I'm off. If I have I got the opportunity, I'm leaving. And you know what? Employees have more choice than they've ever had before. And so if they've got the right skills, they're taking them elsewhere. But also you mentioned about work hours. There's a case study in there in the book from an investment firm, an investment firm really struggling to hire people in New York and London. And so what they did is they opened uh, an office in Malaga and said, look, you know, borderless working, you can work from anywhere. Why don't you work from Malaga? You know, lovely son, blah, blah, blah. When they get back to interview people, why they took the job, it wasn't the nice weather. It was because they guaranteed they could finish at five on Friday and then have to work weekends in the heavy workload hours. And these are people at the start of their career. That's very different to the environment that you and I grew up in. And so I do think we've sort of, you know, before the pandemic, there was that engagement contract, all about the work, and then it became the Thrive contract. We're seeing people as whole people. But now there's this lifestyle contract where young people are saying, actually, if you want the best out of me, you know, understand me as a whole person and work around my lifestyle requirements. Yeah, we see that a lot. I wonder if it's a persona-based kind of hiring that we have to do in the future, where you go in and you help people understand that this is who you are, and then this is the type of jobs that you'll be happy with, and then that'll create a better match over time. Uh, and, and what I mean by that is like, you know, in, in medicine, which we had the guys in medicine earlier, you decide early whether you cut or don't cut, right? You're either internal medicine or you're going to surgery, right? And they have these factors and these tests that say this might help you better if you know yourself, right? This kind of will make you a much happier person. And, and I give you an example, like I'm a special ops guy. I like to go in, get stuff done, fix it, turn it around and hand it off to the next person. Unfortunately, I'm running a company, so I have to do operations, right? But knowing that, I know I need a great COO, right? And so, so you learn the places that you do. And sometimes you go learn something, you're really bad at it, and you have to get good at it. And so you're forced into those kind of environments. Uh, and so it's, it's that matching has got to get better. Maybe AI helps us match those personas with the jobs, with your skills and your career development. Uh, what do you say about I that? I was just about to say it's already doing it because I, I love the way you frame that on the personas because I actually think it isn't just about the manager knowing you better, which AI is definitely helping with, but it's also the individual getting better self-awareness about where do I fit? Where are my natural skills? And of course, we've now got AI talent marketplaces and AI insight tools, which are giving people a lot of information on what skills they have, scraping their information, saying, given where you've worked, you're likely to have these skills. And that's great because that's allowing people to maybe consider jobs they would never have thought of in the future. And we need that. We need people without the four-year degrees to get those exciting opportunities. We need to move our talent around every six or nine months or they're going to be off. And so all of that is a good thing. But it isn't just around skills and task matching, which is, you know, allowing a lot more fungibility in the workforce and bending that supply curve, all good things. It's also some of that motivational stuff. And you said that as well. You know, I, you know I'm a special ops guy. That, I think, is where the science is coming. And I'm fascinated by where the whole field of assessment is going because it's getting a lot more sophisticated with the use of AI of profiling you, matching you, and then tweaking that profile based on how you thrived in different environments. And that's the science of the future. And that's pretty exciting. But there's another part of the equation. There's also the work design piece. You know, your previous yep. colleagues, we do a lot of work at Mercer in the healthcare sector looking at, you know, how can we make the jobs in the healthcare sector more exciting and enjoyable and more attractive? How can we take out the repetitive pieces and give them to um, process AI or, you know, augment them cognitively with AI? Um, but we're also looking at, you've got to make sure that you can train the next generation in the jobs of today for the jobs of tomorrow. So you've got succession um, to kind of release that. 
But what's what I found really interesting in this recent study we just did, Global Talent Trends, 67 of, 67% of companies say, we don't redesign work when we bring in new tech. And at the same time, you've got 84% of people saying they're burnt out. And you've got people saying the main reason why productivity is dragging is because I'm stuck doing busy work and I'm exhausted. So I think we've got to be really careful about as we push all this new technology onto people and it hopefully inspire them to adopt new ways of working. We've got to get rid of the old ways at the same time. That definitely is true. Actually, uh, going back to a thread we were talking about earlier, there was a person we knew that you know, was trying to hire, was hiring, hired someone and they wanted to be in sales, but they didn't like talking to people. <laughs> we thought, okay, how's this going to work? Right. But, but it turns out that what they're doing on chat and chats, right. Where they're not physically talking to people, just typing and connecting to people. This individual was really good at. Uh, and so they didn't like talking to people in front of them or in phase. Right. And, and that's like something we wouldn't have thought about like, Hey, you know, we need to hire salespeople, but they don't have to be extroverts. <laughs> right? I love they don't that. Have to I Right, because right. those mental models hold us back. Yeah, and we've all got, all of us got fixed views about, I had a guy who did this job really well, and I think I should hire someone like that. And I think the exciting thing about technology is it's challenging all those those, those uh, preconceptions. Um, you know, talking in the medical field, we were working with a company who needed people who could sew up heart valves in, you know, this, this, this simulated environment that would then go in for prosthetics and what have you. And they couldn't find enough of them. And then they looked at well, where in the world have we got a lot of sewers because it's the same skill set. And, you yeah. know, now that we're living in, in an era of supply unchanged, we can start looking at um, what are skills adjacencies? Where do they rest in the world? How can we set up hubs there? It's no longer about site selection. It's about where do we orientate our hiring from? And that's pretty cool as well. My favorite chapter in your book is it doesn't pay to stay. And the reason I say that <laughs> Because I learned when I was really young that if I skipped the job every 18 months to 24 months, I would make a ton more money if I, than I stayed. And the difference was huge because I came back to one of the organizations I started out in. And within like two years, the difference, I was making more than my manager. <laughs> you could see the shift and you're like, what the heck is going on here? Uh, how do we flip that? And why don't organizations do that more? Yeah, I mean, one is a pretty bold statement for Mercer, which is obviously the largest reward company, to kind of say that out loud. Yeah, I know, I know, I know, I saw true. that. I was like, I mean, we, you know, we we had a look at what you know, what is the incremental amount if you switch jobs regularly rather than stay. And the sad fact is, yeah, in aggregate, you often do end up earning more, and we've seen it certainly in the tech field. Um, but you do, we do need to flip that paradigm. Why would we not want to reward the people who are good culture fit, that are, you know, our loyal talent? And I think some of it comes down to what we're talking about. We need more agility in our talent models, because if you've got rules that say it's going to be a year before you can actually get the next opportunity, I'm off. If you've got rules that say you can only do a job where you've proven your worth in that area or you've got that on your qualifications, I'm off. You know, if you've also got, you know, jobs where people just say, look, this is not going to help me in my future career, um, then you're going to impact their long term wealth as well. And so that value proposition, that intentional work design, which AI is now helping with, is really important to get right because, you know, the smart ones are the ones that jump. And then HR worries about the ones that stay are the ones that maybe aren't smart enough or actually don't have the confidence to move on. And so I think 
we've got to change this paradigm. But it does come come down to getting a lot more vibrance inside our companies, moving people around and not feeling that the only way to get up is to go out. So in large enterprises, HR has made that shift from being more tactical to being more compliance oriented to being much more strategic. You noted that in 2021, 76% of executives said HR was the hero of the year. Is that still the case? It's a difficult question because I didn't ask that question again in the survey, but I'm going to say no. Uh, I'm going to say no. no for the simple okay. reason that um, this year, what HR is focused on and what uh, executives say will deliver a return on investment are quite diverse. Um, and I think the nub of some of the challenge is HR can be heroes again if they start leading this digital transformation that we're seeing. You know, everyone is in conversations about how do we bring our large language models in-house? What are the productivity gains of different AI applications? And for me, that impacts the jobs of the future, that impacts workflow, that impacts the skills that you need for tomorrow. That also gives me the opportunity to have that persona-based work or personalization for my pay package because you know that I'm going to care more about, you know, having a training course rather than a 5% increase. All of that good stuff is all about people and about how humans need to evolve and how we manage the people agenda. But sometimes HR isn't always in that conversation as digital is being led out. And yet if we don't inspire people to be part of this digital revolution, they're going to be left behind. And I, I probably worry more about that. I think if HR can get that right, they'll be the heroes again. You know, that's an important piece, right? As we actually switch that, the culture piece, the people aspect, that drives a lot of the conversation, right? And getting that right is not easy. Uh, that's why people talk to folks like you to take the research and apply it to action, uh, which is very, very important. Uh, one last question for you. Um, is AI going to get rid of all of us? Is it negative? Uh, what's the implication <laughs> of more AI in the workplace? You know, I know you've read my for decades to go, so... Yeah, well, I think we'll definitely be talking about it for decades to go. If you read the chapter in the book, we talk about amplified intelligence. And so we definitely, I mean, you know, writing about AI, you know, a year before your book launches is always a bit worrying. Um, but um, you did a good job. Good but job. I think it does stand the test of time. I think the opportunities for us to have more exciting and exhilarating jobs, for us to add value in new ways, and for us to hopefully take some of those gains of AI and translate them into well-being, four-day work week, investment in skills, so that we actually get a better balance in, you know, working today, but building health and wealth tomorrow is going to be really important. So I do think that the air cover that AI can give in terms of that productivity lift should give us an opportunity to say, we can finally make the changes to work that everyone's been craving and the issues that we know we need to fix. This is an amazing book. If you haven't had a chance, definitely grab it. Published by Wiley, came out in November. Uh, and we are talking to Kate Bravery. Uh, work different. Uh, this is the mantra going forward. Yesterday is gone. It's now today and tomorrow. So Absolutely. definitely catch it there. So thank you so much for being on the show. We really appreciate oh, having pleasure. you. Uh, author of Work Different, 10 Truths for Winning in the New People Age. So, of course, catch our Kate, K-A-T-E-B-R-A-V-E-R-Y on X and get her new book. Thank you so much for being on the show. Happy Friday. Thank you, Ray. Have a good evening. Bye-bye. Oh, my. I am left with myself. 
to talk about what happens. And this has never occurred before. Actually, maybe it's one done once in the history of Disrupt TV. But part of the reason here is uh, to share with you some of the insights. And so let's talk about what happened today. Dr. Romy Chopra came by and uh, he shared with us how patient-centric health is happening, why that workplace is going to look different, and more importantly, how digital transformation, AI, and those experiences are coming together. We got Giner Osgo, and he shared with us what's going on with the trades. And the reason we're talking about the trades is because that's a new type of work environment. We haven't been spending a lot of time or investment in, in a while, and it's actually starting to pick up. There's a shortage in trades, shortage in work. Uh, and of course, how do we make that work? Well, that work is going to be different as well as it gets digitized, as we get to the eight out, out on the edges, and we think about where AI, IoT, and other technologies are going to transform how that work is done. If we think about population dynamics, right, population dynamics are pretty flat in the US, kind of negative in Europe, very negative in China and Japan, right? We're going to need a lot more augmented humanity and machine and human interactions. And that's start, just the start of that process. And of course, Kate just rounded this up with us, uh, talking about what that new type of work is going to look like, how we work different. Uh, there's some great pieces here talking about, you know, some of the things that employers have done to change the, change the, change the equation. And more importantly, uh, how people are promoting things like trust. Uh, what did people learn in terms of the pandemic? Uh, what do you think about employees' well-being? How that all factors into changing that work, workforce environment? And of course, really what that new model looks like, especially around the individual. So that is conclusion of episode 354. Next week, we will be back. Bala Ashtar will be here again. And of course, we'll be interviewing some amazing guests in episode 355. Dr. David Bray, he's coming back. Distinguished fellow, Stimson Center and Business Center executive, Business Executives for National Security. We got Ellen McCarthy, CEO and board member, advisor, another senior fellow. Duan Lee, yes, founder, principal scientist and board advisor, professor, and our own Shrag Mehta, VP and principal analyst at Constellation Research, covering cybersecurity and products. And you'll be able to catch that all live. So no show next week. This is the show uh, for 3-8. Uh, just so everyone knows that for sure. So March 8th, we will see you back. No show on March 1st. And of course, we'll catch you live. So if it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern. And of course, follow us on Twitter, uh, on X, as they call it, uh, YouTube, and anywhere else you're watching us on our social channels. So have a great Friday. Oh!